You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Friday, January 5th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding home with me on what's been a pretty successful day. So I went and got my third sirloin steak of the week at the fake Western Sizzling. Western Sizzling we have in Dalton. Now why do I call it the fake Western Sizzling? Because it was Western Sizzling for 30 years and then they changed the name to something else. But it still serves all the same stuff as Western Sizzling. Anyway, I eat there all the time because they have a good steak. Normally, you think buffet food, steer clear, but they they make a good steak at Western Sizzling. And if it's not there in 10 minutes, it's free. So Monday, I didn't get it in 10 minutes, or really the next one's free. And then today, I didn't get it in 10 minutes. So you know what I'm going to go do Tuesday? Eat a free steak. So very successful on that front. And then... uh, I had a 60% winning percentage at ping pong today because it's ping pong day at work. So I'm in a good mood. I'm in a good mood today on the Christian commute. I don't know who has the right of way right here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive. I think the other guy had it, but he didn't go. Oh, well. It's dark, but I have a full episode <coughs> for you today. Thanks once again. To Aaron in Texas. Today's show title is Flockhart's Fake Church. Flockhart's Fake Church. But it's not just going to be about 901 Church. Uh, it's going to be about all such organizations. It's So don't feel like you, you we're beating up on Steve and Stevie Flockhart again. Uh, we're going to talk about a model. We're going to talk about what your expectation should be for a biblically sound church. And we're going to talk about a little bit of my experience in churches that didn't have voting membership. Okay. I have a question in the inbox about nativity scenes. It came before Christmas... It would have been better to answer before Christmas while everyone was still in the Christmas spirit and people were decorating for Christmas and thinking about nativity scenes. Uh, But I didn't record any shows for two weeks, so that's that. (coughs) I'm going to answer it now. And, as always, we have the Bible chapter review. We have moved on to Matthew chapter 27. We're in verses 1 through two. One and two. And uh, in verse three, we're going to get to Judas. That'll be Lord willing Tuesday, because I don't come to work on Monday. Yeah, You know what I'm going to do on Tuesday? If the Lord don't come back and I'm still alive, I'm going to eat me a free steak at the fake Western Sizzlin'. The new name is Yellowstone Steak and Buffet. I'm going to eat me a sirloin steak unless my buddy wants to. My buddy at work wants to go to a taco restaurant. I might. We might go someplace different because I like to eat with him on Tuesday. But uh, 
I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to talk about how sorry Judas was in verse 3. But verses 1 through 2, starting in verse 27. Peter has just denied Jesus three times, wept bitterly, and left the place where they were keeping him. Verse 1. Now, when morning came, all of the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. So here's the deal. The Jews want Jesus dead. They've put on this trial at the high priest's house. Now they've decided he should die, but they can't carry out the sentence because the Romans are ruling over them. So the governmental situation in Jerusalem, in Judea in general, is that there's a Roman prefect, that is the governor of the territory, of the Roman territory, Pilate. So Pilate, the governor, answers to Caesar, but you know, basically his word is law there in Jerusalem. And to make the Jews happy, there is an appointed ethnarch, King Herod, in the area. So, he rules, he's the quote-unquote king, but he's really a client king of Rome, and Rome has their own government there. The high priests really don't have the power to mete out corporal punishment. Apparently, they, you know, they can beat somebody up, but only Rome is going to be able to legitimately sentence someone to death. Now, let's skip ahead in Bible history to Acts. Remember in Acts when Stephen is stoned? That's an extrajudicial killing. That's a mob killing somebody. And this is not what's happening to Jesus. They want the killing of Jesus to be nice and legal, but they can't do it. They have to convince Pilate that it is warranted. So Pilate has to make a legal and political decision when Jesus gets to him. Pilate has to, number one, decide, has this guy done anything to warrant receiving the death penalty? Like, and it can't be a crime against Judaism. It's got to be a crime against Rome. It's what they think it's a crime. And secondly, whether he's done it or not, what are the political ramifications to a hostile people because Pilate is ruling over a hostile people. The, the Jews don't want him there. They want, they want to rule Israel themselves. And there, you know, there's varying degrees of cooperation. You have the zealots who want the military overthrow, and there's, there's people there as well who just they're just fine living under Roman rule. But generally speaking, the Jews want to revolt, and they did. Uh, before 70 A.D. because Rome had to reconquer Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and that's when the temple was destroyed. That's 40 years from what's going on right now in the story in, in history in Matthew 27. But that attitude is there. That rebellion is brewing. So Pilate has to be careful with the way he handles the Jews. Not only 
to avoid rebellion, even though you know the Romans probably think they can win, not only to avoid rebellion, but because Caesar doesn't want unrest in one of his territories. And if Pilate messes up, maybe Caesar will find somebody else who could keep the Jews in line. But that's the situation that Pilate's in, and we'll cover that later when we talk about Pilate. I probably jumped ahead too far. But the Jews, for all their findings of blasphemy and deciding that he deserves to die, they need the Gentile governor Pilate to carry out the sentence for (laughs) them, and they decide we're going to bind him (coughs) and we're going to take him to Pilate. To do a really trite analogy, it's like one of your kids comes to you and tells on the other one. They know he's wrong, (laughs) but they can't do anything about it. All right, let's move on to the inbox. Do you have a question about Christian theology and apologetics? Oh, I hope you do, because I'm running out. If you do, write to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. SethDunn88 at gmail.com or dial 470-315-0875. Ask me your question about Christian theology or apologetics. Tell me where you're from. Keep your question short enough to memorize and only send me one question per email. If you have five questions, send me five separate emails, please. And Aaron broke the rules. Aaron from Texas broke the rules and sent two questions. There's the serious question that I'm going to answer, which is, what do you think about nativity scenes? And then there's the question that she asked me, why do you think fake trees are popish? I don't really think fake trees are popish. That's just something I joke around about because I don't want to get my mom's fake tree out of the attic. When I was a kid, part of the wonder of Christmas, part of the fun of the Christmas season was going to pick out your Christmas tree at the Christmas tree lot. Now I go to Pike Nurseries and I buy it from a faceless, nameless corporate store and you can't haggle with them. The price is the price. Uh, When I was the purchasing manager at Field Turf, my uh, freight forwarder who shipped my yarn from Germany gave me a free tree from the overpriced Christmas tree lot. So I would go to the agro-tourism Christmas tree lot and then we'd have a party with the, their, their freight forwarder would have a little Christmas party for all their clients and give us Christmas trees. But now i got to buy a Christmas tree like a chump. But when I was a kid, we'd buy our Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot that would pop up on the side of Highway 58. And we'd go and we'd pick one out like, Dad, I want that one. And then I'd have to go through the turmoil of my dad haggling with the dude for you know $25 or $30, you know, some tiny amount to buy this Christmas tree and I'm like I gotta have this one and we might not get it because my dad is haggling and then we'd go home and buy a Christmas tree the first year we moved to Cartersville we moved into a new house in the fancy swim and tennis community with vaulted ceilings that are 20 feet high we got a 10 foot Christmas tree it was giant but eventually I grew up and my parents stopped caring about going Christmas tree shopping and they bought a fake tree, especially since, I never knew this when I was a kid, uh, the tree bothered my dad's allergies. And now that I'm older, the trees bother me too. And my dad would just have a stuffy nose for the sake of his kids uh, in Christmas. 
So the reason I call them popish is the original Baptists in America back 400 years ago did not celebrate Christmas, Christ, Mass. So we low church people are often ignorant of all the blue million pagan feast days that the Roman Catholic Church has. The Roman Catholic Church has feast days and special masses. Christmas is but one of them. They celebrate innumerable saints. This is the feast day of Saint so-and-so, who's the saint of this and the saint of that. The Roman Catholic Church is like paganism in that you had the Roman pagan religions when you had Zeus, well, they didn't have Zeus, well, they had Jupiter. I'm using the I'm going to use the Greek names. They had Zeus, the god of the sky; Poseidon, the god of the sea; Hades, the god of the dead; and Mercury's the god of messengers. And Diana is the god of wisdom. Hephaestus is the god of blacksmiths. Hera is the god of mothers and for goddess of mothers and fertility. Apollo's the god of the sun, and so on and so on. Well, when Christianity took on in the Roman Empire, even though the, the, the official cult religion then was the cult of Sol Invictus, which was sun worship, and they had moved on from the, from the uh, Hellenistic religions. But the Roman Catholic Church dresses up like a bunch of pagans. They have a priest in his little costume, his purple and gold costume, and then they name dead people the saints of things. So Matthew's the patron saint of accountants, whereas in the, Roman, in the Roman gods would have a god of something. Dionysus is the, was the god of wine, and, but now there's probably some patron saint of winemakers. I'm sure they have a list of all the saints that they pray to. And they pray to Mary, uh, the mother of God, the queen of heaven. It's just, a, it's the veneer of paganism is so obvious to me. A Roman Catholic would probably argue differently. But can you not see how they just turned all their demigods into saints and kept priests in costumes doing priestcraft? Okay? So, nowadays, Baptists do not really uh, express the disdain for Roman Catholicism. Not Roman Catholics, but Roman Catholicism. I'll say I have a disdain for the priests because they're in charge. But, I mean, the Catholic people are my friends and neighbors. They're just people who need to be witnessed to. But for Roman Catholicism, uh, the Baptists do not express the great disdain that they used to. And the original Baptists just saw Christmas, bah humbug, as another Roman Catholic feast day. It's Christ, Christ Mass, so it's the season of Advent. The, the Catholics are celebrating the first Advent of Christ, and they have a Mass, Christ Mass. And we Baptists, we know a Mass is something you would never go to. It's not like visiting a Presbyterian or a Methodist church. In the Catholic Mass, they re-crucify Christ and redo His blood and body in their perverted idea of the Lord's Supper and transubstantiation and the magisterium conferring grace upon you. So the early Baptists saw Christmas as a Catholic thing. They said it was popish, and they didn't celebrate it. Well, I didn't grow up in 1600, so I celebrate Christmas, and I get excited. But when I think of the commercialization and 
dressing up of Christmas and you get depressed like Charlie Brown and you got to ask Linus what's the true meaning of Christmas because I, my aluminum tree's too ugly. And he, he, he recounts Luke, when I think of priestcraft and popery, I think of fakery and fake things. Like a fake Christmas tree. We're going to decorate this fake thing for the festival. So when my mom decided to get a fake tree, I didn't like it. Not because it was popish, because I missed having a real tree that was authentic. Now that I make fake grass for a living, I think I'm okay with fake trees. I might not get a real tree next year because the one I got this year made me sneeze. So I told my mom, I was like, I don't want to get your popish 10-foot fake tree down. I really didn't want to climb into the attic because that thing's heavy. So I was like, no, mom, it's popish. And of course, I'd get it for her anyway. But that's the thing I always say tongue-in-cheek, that fake Christmas trees are popish. Why don't we put on a garish costume get some golden idols and go have a mass. So they're not, fake Christmas trees aren't really popish. They're economical if you think about it. I used to all be able, we ought to play, they ought to play football on real grass. And then I started getting paid a lot of money to make fake turf. Uh, artificial turf. And now I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> but let's get to Aaron's real question. What do I think of nativity scenes? I don't think she's asking me this question to get my opinion on interior decoration at Christmas time. I think what she means to ask me, and I'm going to put some words in your mouth, Aaron, is Seth, do you think that Christmas tree, or not Christmas trees, do you think that nativity scenes are a second commandment violation? So it has become real popular in Reformed Baptist Christianity, and I guess the Pres I'll throw the Presbyterians in there too. While all the Reformed people are growing beards, uh, drinking Reformation brand beer, and smoking cigars with Jeff Durbin, to say, and you're, oh, they're also taking Dominion because they're post mills too, to say that any image of Jesus is a 2CV, is a second commandment violation. All these Renaissance paintings of Jesus, second commandment violation. The stained glass picture of Jesus that you have above your baptistry at church, second commandment violation. The, the, remember those, that old picture of Jesus that people, old ladies used to keep in their house? That long-haired surfer Jesus that you got in your house, second commandment violation. Oh, and that nativity scene that you have, second commandment violation, because thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nothing in heaven above, earth below, or under the sea. The Ten Commandments say don't make idols. Don't make an image of a God, any God, and since Jesus is God, it violates the second commandment to make any kind of picture of him. And by the way, that would include Jim Caviezel playing Jesus uh, in The Passion of the Christ, or uh, Jonathan Rumi playing Jesus in The Chosen, or even uh, Willem Dafoe playing Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ, or any any Jesus character in any movie ever. Even the guy who says, drink up, Judah Ben-Hur. You know, so just can't portray Jesus or show Jesus. 
And a nativity scene, they're ubiquitous. They're in churches, they're in all these kinds of Christian houses. Are all these people with a nativity scene violating the second commandment? And to, to that I say, no, I, no, no. Um, I think there's articles on Pulpit and Pen, which I own, that say it's a second commandment violation. I didn't write them. Jordan did. I'm not about to take down his work. But I don't, I don't agree with that. And some of you Reformed listeners that I have, because you know this is a Calvinistic show, at least soteriologically th- uh, uh, speaking, you, you might be like, I can't believe Seth is saying this, but guys, read the second commandment, the whole thing. Don't make an image of anything in heaven above, anything on earth, or anything in the sea. Now think about their context. What the idols looked like back then and what the purpose of the idols was. Think about the golden calf. that The Israelites made a golden calf while Moses went up to get the very Ten Commandments that said not to do that. Okay. But what was the golden calf? It was a calf. And they said, alright, here's the God that brought you out of Egypt. And they represented God in the form of a calf, in the form of a created being, in the form of a cow, like the Egyptians would have done. They came from Egypt, and they saw calf idols in Egypt, and they're saying, well, this is our God. So they come from this idolatrous country like Egypt. Egypt has Anubis. I think Anubis is a dog, uh, or a jackal, and Osiris is a bird. They, they're, I guess his head, his, he has a bird head and a man body. Anubis is the same way. So they, they're making gods, and they're saying the gods look like animals. I think Dagon was a fish god. So what, and think of Romans 1. The people are turned over to sin, and they make idols out of things that crawl upon the earth. So they represent the gods, or a god, by, by created things. Fish or cows. Jackals in the case of Anubis. Or they make a god in the image of a person. And then what do they do with that idol? They worship it. The reason idolaters make idols is to put an idol in their house and to put an idol in their temple and then they bow down in front of that idol and worship it. It's a part of their religious practice. And it personifies their God in their home. And the Bible says that all these false gods are really demons. But what is God? What is Yahweh? Yahweh is spirit. So you can't really make an image of God legitimately because he doesn't look like anything. He's spirit. At least before the Incarnation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed in eternity past. God is spirit. They don't have bodies. And by the way, angels don't have bodies. They appear with them, but angels are spirit beings too. So it's really impossible to make an accurate image of God because he didn't look like anything. Now, in the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity did become a man with a human body. And people could look at him. He looked like us. We don't really know what he looked like. We have this idea of what he may have looked like in Western culture, but 
Jesus would have looked like some Jewish dude from that time. Probably had tan skin and a beard, but they, there's no pictures of him. No, there's no paintings. There's no sculptures of, of Jesus from that time. We don't know what he looked like. So, is what is... Now, let, we've talked about what idols are, the graven image, what they are and what their purpose was in the context of second the uh, of the second commandment in Exodus. Where we get that. Okay? In the time of the Exodus. Now let's talk about the reason we would have a nativity scene. The nativity scene just tells a story. While we're celebrating the birth of Christ, this is here he's born. He's in the manger. And here's his parents looking upon him and Here's some camels, and here's some goats and cows. Your nativity scenes have animals. Some nativity scenes have the three wise men. Now, here's the thing. The three wise men were not there in Jesus' infancy. When Jesus was born and placed in the manger, and there's debate whether the manger was in a barn or the manger was just in the bottom floor of somebody's house, and there probably weren't any animals there. Okay, There's a debate about that. Who cares? All right. But when Jesus was placed in that manger the night he was born, the wise men weren't there. It took them months to get there. By the time the wise men got there, Jesus had grown up some. And they brought in the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then Jesus had to flee because the wise men told him, or the wise men, I think an angel warned Joseph that uh, Herod's out to get you, but the wise men told Herod the wrong information so Jesus could get away. Or they, or they just avoided Herod. They left by a different route. I'm trying to remember the Bible story. The wise men didn't narc on Jesus. So, number one, is it a second commandment violation? No. Because we don't bow down and worship the baby Jesus in our nativity scenes. It's not, we don't think God somehow embodies the little ceramic baby Jesus. Okay? And it's just a generic baby. We, we don't know what baby Jesus looked at, looked like. And it's the same thing for paintings. I have a print at my house that my brother gave me of Caravaggio's The Calling of St. Matthew. And in the picture, Matthew is at a table with all these guys counting money. And the guys counting money are looking down at their money. And Jesus is in the room and they're not even looking up. And Jesus is pointing at Matthew, and there's a light coming from behind Jesus, and Matthew is fixed upon Jesus. And it's the call of Matthew, and Matthew, the tax collector, is leaving the money-changing life, or the tax-collecting tax life, I should say, not money-changing. And he's leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. And that's what Caravaggio, who I think was a scoundrel, is trying to convey to people, is Matthew looked to Jesus and the other guys didn't. Now, the other guys are not described in the Bible, the people in the room. In the, in, in the picture, the guys are dressed like like Shakespeare actors, like it's they're in Renaissance clothes. They're not even in Jewish clothes. But what those paintings would have done is visually tell the story to people. Everybody didn't used to could read. Everybody didn't used to could read. That's grammar. I, I talk good. All right. It used to be that literacy rates were low. How about that? There we go. That sounds like I'm an educated person. Literacy rates were low. 
And the way a lot of people, uh, a lot of think of how they did in Sunday school. A lot of uh, people uh, did Bible stories was through a painting or a picture, a stained glass window. This is the story. This is what's going on. And somebody's going to tell you to look at this picture and describe it. It's not for the purpose of worshiping the painting. The, that picture's somewhere in my basement. I don't, have, I don't even think I have it hung up anywhere right now. But I don't go pray in front of that painting. Because that's not Jesus. It's just, he didn't even look like that. It's just a story. It's just to remind me, hey, that just like Matthew was called, so was I. And I need to leave the world behind and, and focus on Jesus. And so do all Christ's followers, okay? No one ever made a nativity scene for the purpose of somebody worshiping in front of it. Same thing for the stained glass window above the baptistry. It, it may be garish, but I really can't say that it's a violation of the second commandment. And remember, Jesus really was a man. So, there really was a flesh and blood person walking around the earth who was God. Before the incarnation, there wasn't that. So, I don't have any problem with nativity scenes. I usually, if, um, I don't set one out. I have one that my friend gave me that's just Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. But, um... If I ever see one that's sitting out and the wise men are close, I move them further away. Like, no, nah, these guys are on the way. They're not there yet. But even, even the ones that have the wise men in it, they're trying to condense the story. The wise men are recognizing Jesus as the king, and they're giving him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts fit for a king. You're supposed to tell. It's meant to tell the story and remind us of the story. Idols are not storytelling devices. I'm going to repeat that. Idols are not storytelling devices. They're tools or props of worship. So I don't. I really can't say that the second commandment, which bans idols, applies to images of Jesus. And the, the, the way people get there is they say, the second commandment bans images of God. Okay, you're not supposed to make an idol of God. You're not supposed to do that. Whether it's a false god or the true god, you're not supposed to make an idol of him. Idols are images of God. Jesus is God, so therefore any image of Jesus is an idol. And I'm sorry, no. You can't divorce the verse from its context. Sorry. Now, there's Roman Catholics out there with a little picture of a saint, and what do they do? They have him on a prayer card, and they pray in front of that saint, they pray in front of that prayer card. That's idolatry. That's paganism. Because they're using it as an, they're, they're making that person a demigod. Okay? When you walk into a Roman Catholic church and there's a statue of Mary holding Jesus and she's wearing a crown and people go pray in front of that statue, that's idolatry. I think some people want to say if you don't call the nativity scene idolatry, you can't call the Roman Catholic church idolatry. Because, listen, if you've ever been in Roman Catholic high school, there's a crucifix in every room. And listen, when the Roman Catholics put a cross up, they leave Jesus on it. Because remember, in their mass, they're re-crucifying Christ. Protestant crosses, Jesus is off that cross. Because he's at the right hand of God in heaven. And he's once, he's once, once and for all, made atonement for our sins. He suffered once for all. It's done. 
That's that's in Peter. He suffered once for all. Peter doesn't say he suffered once and for all. He suffered once, once for all. He didn't suffer again, but that's what that's what the Bible, you know, once, not again. Get Jesus off the crucifix. But that's what Catholics do. They'll go pray in front of a crucifix like Jesus is really there because they're in the room with their picture of Jesus. That's idolatrous. I can I can use nuance and context. It's important that we do it. So I disagree that nativity scenes are second commandment violations. That's why when First Baptist gives a... a nativity sets out to the five-year-olds. They do it every year. They give the five-year-olds a nativity set. I'm not like walking through, grabbing them and smashing them, saying, no, no, idolatry in church. I don't do that. I can see how for someone coming out of the pagan religion of Roman Catholicism, I can see how someone coming out of that could see a Jesus stained glass window or nativity scene in a Protestant context. Like, no, 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 I don't want that. I don't want a picture of Mary. Listen, we don't have to turn in our nativity scenes because the Catholics are pagan. Right? So I, I'm sorry, I've just never heard a an open and shut case for pictures of Jesus in and of themselves, or even portrayals of him in a movie. Not I, I, and listen, I don't recommend the chosen, that's garbage. Um, being a second commandment violation. Now I'll tell you this, like the Shaq movie. Where they have a woman playing God, I don't care if it's a man or a woman, you can't just pick uh, a theophany for God. That is, that's blasphemous. So you got to take it, you got to take it on a case-by-case case basis. And you say, is this idolatry? Well, what is it? What is an idol? What were idols used for? Because people aren't making pictures of Jesus like he's Dagon or Anubis with fish and jackal parts. If they did, it would be idolatry because he didn't have fish and jackal parts. He was a dude. And I mean, think about think about it this way. Think about a stained glass window that didn't have Jesus in it. And it was it was it was Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac and then you see the ram. Well, that's not a second commandment violation. But the ram symbolizes Christ. But then you have a Bible story of, of little children coming unto Jesus. Oh, that's idolatry. Stop it. They're just pictures telling a story. Um, but by, by the way, don't say it's a Christian liberty thing because of violation of the Ten Commandments. There's no, there's no Christian liberty of the violation of the Ten Commandments. All right? It's not like drinking a beer. Okay? You have no Christian liberty to violate any of the Ten Commandments. The question is, is it or is it not? If you think it is, I consider you the weaker brother, and when you're at my house, I'll put my nativity scene away. Uh, so I don't have any problems of people you know, dusting off the nativity scene from the box they keep it in when it's Christmas time. So they can show the kids and say, here's Jesus as a little baby and he came into the world and he had a mommy and daddy and he was just a little baby. In his first advent, in his second advent, he's coming back as prophet, priest, king and he's going to rule. So no, I don't have any problem with that. I would say a bigger problem with nativity scenes, it could be historical inaccuracy. Like, yes, the wise men were not there. 
We understand why they're included to tell the whole story. Um, we want to tell not only the birth, but of him being recognized. Uh, we understand that it might not have been in a barn with a bunch of barn animals. We want to be accurate to the Bible. My nativity scene was made by Peruvian peasants. And it's just the little people. It's uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And I'm a Protestant. I know that Mary's not God. I don't sit in front of my nativity scene and say, Oh, Mother, Queen of Heaven, please uh, please go to Jesus for me and uh, ask Him to help Alabama win. You know, I don't do that. So, thank you for that question, Aaron. That's what I think of nativity scenes. And by the way, throw in live nativities. A lot of churches have the live nativities. Some people think those are cool. I'm like, I'm not going to stand out in the cold, and I'm not going to drive out in the cold to see it. Sorry. <laughs> um, some people on Easter will put three dudes on a cross and uh, there to remind us of what happened at Easter. They'll be like, oh, you're playing Jesus. Anyway, uh, good question. I know, I know a lot of you guys um, don't agree with me, and or some of you don't, but hey, I, that, that's fine. I realize how you got there, and you're just trying to honor God, so I don't, I mean, I, I don't take issue with you. If I was building a church, I wouldn't put a bunch of pictures of Jesus all over it. Some of it's hokey. You ever seen one of these pictures of Jesus, and it's Jesus under a tree, and then there's a bunch of kids, but... There's a kid in Lederhosen, and then there's, that's what, that's like German Bavarian people wear, and then there's a kid in American clothes, and then there's a there's a kid in a Nehru jacket because he's from India, and then there's a Chinese kid with their, you know, their Chinese hats that look like walks on. I don't know what you call them. There's a Mexican kid with a sombrero, and it's like, and they're, what they're trying to say is red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, but there was never a time when Jesus was under a tree with kids from 10 different countries. He didn't really travel that far from his home. I think Egypt is, is as far as Jesus traveled, as far as we know from the Bible. Okay, So there's stuff like that that's kind of hokey, and I get why they do it. There's a lot of weird stuff that happens in children's ministry. There's Noah's Ark is everywhere in children's ministry. Like little toys, and I'm like, are we? you know everybody drowned. Like why are we why are we giving a Noah's Ark theme to the kids area? Cause this is the the story is everybody's so bad God kills all but eight people. He and not only does he drown all the people, he drowns all the puppies and kittens while he's at it. Except two. So I don't know about that. Let's move on. To the show topic. I talked at length. I want to interview the guy from the podcast. I don't know if I'll ever get to do it. With the former like finance director, volunteer finance director at 901 Church. That's Stevie Flockhart's church. That's Steve Flockhart's son. I did the whole story on Stevie Flockhart. You know, the guy who, <laughs> who was saying, if the stories are to be believed and I believe them, I could fart into the mic and we'd raise money. And, I mean, I, I, if, you, if you heard that podcast, he founded a church in Georgia... The church couldn't pay the rent. He forged lease modifications, not once, but I think two times, maybe three. Got in trouble for that. Got a pastorate in Florida. Went down there. 
tried to take over that church. Like one guy had to quit because the relationship was so bad. They find out. They found out about his forgery. They tried to put him in some restoration period. Uh, it, it was a disaster. They accused him of selling church property like musical instruments and pocketing the money. His landlord down there came after him for unpaid rent or damage to the house. Somebody loaned him $10,000 to pay off his debts. He didn't pay the guy back. Then he moved on uh, to Tennessee and or to, to, do, to do a church a church campus of his dad's church, New Season, New Season Church. Then they split off. And all the pe- a lot, not all, but a lot of the people who were volunteering were like, wow, Stevie's a mess. And he was arrested for stealing one guy's identity by opening a credit card without his permission. And uh, he's going to beat that charge because the church paid back the credit card company. And it came, I think it came off the guy's credit. But he's going to beat that charge. And, you know, you, you talk and dig and dig. And now I'm being told stories of Stevie being at Liberty University and flunking out, stealing his roommate's guitar to try and pawn it, but he couldn't pawn it. Uh, taking money from an old lady who was his neighbor uh, to pay off something and then never, like $13,000, and then ne- never paying her back because she's, oh, that's a donation to my church. So he's just like this super scoundrel. And when it gets to the story of 901 Church in Memphis, which he was the pastor of, and I guess still is, that grew to be multiple campuses itself, when the finance director guy and a couple of friends said, Stevie, enough is enough. You're being irresponsible with the money. The way you're leading is really bad. You're mistreating people. Well, all of a sudden, they just got voted out of the church. They got letters saying you're no longer a partner from the church. And here's the thing. This is what I told the guy. You didn't have a church to get kicked out of. So I asked him about the bylaws of 901 Church, and it's basically this. The bylaws say that there is a management leadership team, and the management leadership team has to be somebody who's on staff, and I think there's supposed to be three of them. So it's going to be Stevie and an associate pastor and another associate pastor. Those are the people who have sole decision-making from a legal standpoint. So the people who can actually make the legal decisions for the organization, sort of like the board members of a a corporation, is the management leadership team. And they are not, to my knowledge, appointed by voting membership. And there is a nominal elder committee who oversees 901 Church that's a part of some kind of church planning collective and these are pastors of other churches who are supposedly who supposedly have spiritual oversight of Stevie and the management leadership team. But when it comes down to it, there's no such thing as 901 Church. There's a building. There used to be multiple buildings. There's music equipment and TVs in the building. And there's seats. And there's bylaws. And the corporation filed as a legal entity with the state of Tennessee. But there's really no such thing as 901 Church because 901 Church, a church, any church is the people, right? The members of that individual local church make up the church. But legally, there is no voting membership on 901 Church. If they want to kick somebody out, they don't do Matthew 18 and bring the person before the church and have a church vote. The MLT, if two out of three decide uh, that the, the people are kicked out they're kicked out but what 
what are they really kicked out of? It's, it's nothing. So when you grow up in a normal church like I did that had been there for 50 or 100 years, you have the understanding that there's church meetings and there's members. And on those rare occasions when somebody is voted out, the members actually decide. And there are people making budgets and decisions to spend money, but those people are appointed by a committee, and the committee is elected by the church body. And if the pastor is acting in a way that the church doesn't, I'm not even going to say right or wrong, just the way the church doesn't like, somebody can go to the business meeting, make a motion to fire the pastor, and if the members vote to fire the pastor, he's not the pastor anymore. So, I mean, you can read Article 6 of the Baptist Faith and Message that says what a church is. It's a local body of believers run by the democratic process. But there's members of a church. When it comes down to it, to 901, the only people who have any really legal authority is the management leadership team. It's the three guys on the board. You can make all the budgets and rules that you want, but as long as those guys don't violate the bylaws, they're not doing anything illegal. And listen, you can give your time, your talent, and treasure to that church. You can teach Sunday school. You can play in the praise band. You can be the volunteer director of finance and do the books. But you really don't have any kind of equity in that. It's just all your service, and when they want you gone, if they want you gone, you're gone. It's up to the MLT. And if the pastor does something to disqualify himself, all that can really happen is people can vote with their feet and stop showing up to the building. Now we know that there's nothing in the Bible that says we've got to be incorporated with the state and have bylaws and have legal authority. That's just how our society works. And so what I'm saying is when you have these churches... Really, it's really kind of fake. It's somebody's own personal business. And instead of somebody buying from them, they donate and give free labor. It's a genius business model for scoundrels. When I went to Expedition Church, as I, I came to find out, there was no formal membership. And, and Tim told me, Pastor Tim told me, like, we know, we know who the part of the church family is. Like, of course, it's John, it's Gary. He's, we, we're, it's 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 uh, Stacy. People are here every week. Miss Teresa, Miss Loretta, we we know who who part of the church is. It's just kind of this idea. Like remember what Justice Blackman says: I can't define pornography for you, but I know it when I see it. And it was sort of that same way. Well, we don't have defined formal membership, but we know who the church family is. And I, I remember thinking that, like, okay, you know, okay. And it came up because I was having to reapply for, not reapply, but get a reendorsed for seminary because people were trying, the whole Woodstock thing, that's why. Um, and I needed a, a, a new church endorsement since Tabernacle had endorsed me. I wasn't there anymore. And the seminary paper says, what's your church membership? They have to endorse you. And I'm like, well, here. And they go, we don't have membership. I'm like, but it says I have to be a member. And they're like, all right, well, we'll say you're a member for the purpose of this document. Because if we know who the church is, we know who the members are. But I was like, I don't know about this. Shouldn't we have formal membership? And then I got to thinking about it. And by the way, Tim's not a scoundrel. Tim doesn't take advantage of people. He's not like Stevie Flockhart. Like, Tim honestly means well. I, he, There's people who mean well, 
and do terrible things, and there's people who are just sociopaths that do terrible things, or scoundrels that do terrible things. Tim means well. I really think he does. But if you think about it, Tim was the guy who went to church planning school with Bill Agee at Woodstock. Tim was the guy who did all the work to gather the people together, and he founded the church. He, start, he, he planted the church. And I don't think it was, like I said, and this is my thing now, I don't want to go to a church plant that wasn't planted by another church. Not, I don't want to be a part of a church that some dude just founded. But it was, it's kind of Tim's baby. So if, if the bank account were to fill out and the church stops, starts operating, and this is a church plant, what if 20 people come in and just become members and they take over and they vote everybody out? That could happen. So basically, I think the board of elders or the board of directors was like Tim, his father-in-law, Bruce, and Joe, who was one of the elders. That's who was ultimately running things. And maybe one other guy. What was his name? Greg? Can't remember. He was a pilot. So it was basically Tim and a couple of wealthier guys who could bankroll things. And that's who was in charge. And when it came time that appealing to the membership was needed because Tim wasn't doing his job and Tim brought in a Roman Catholic speaker at Expedition Church to fill the pulpit, there was really no one to appeal to from a membership perspective because nobody had any power anyway. The most you could do was like try and convince them. And then what are you doing? Being divisive and people don't want to listen to that? You'd have to convince what, Tim's father-in-law and his, his buddy who founded the church with him? Good luck. And that's the kind of situation that the people at 901 Church have gotten in. And there's, there's, the, there's, this, there's the phrase, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So you've gone to a stupid church, a church that gets some charismatic speaker who doesn't have any biblical qualifications to pass, uh, for pastoring to speak of. He's just some dude's son who got installed. That's his qualification. You guys thought it would be a good idea. You gave money to this organization where he's totally in charge of the bylaws. And then you thought church was listening to this guy give stupid sermons and sitting in a dark room with a light show. That's what you thought church was. You didn't ever think church was regenerate church membership. That's like actually people on a list. And you've won your stupid prize when you said, all right, you're doing wrong, you're being unbiblical, and you, what you, I've seen the document they have. Here's the things you're doing against the Bible. And it's, all right, you're out. Here's per the bylaws. So let me ask you something, listener. Are you now, or have you ever been at basically a fake church like 901 Church that's one of these church plants that's basically three people in some bylaws and whoever shows up? And, yeah, people can vote with their feet, but the kind of dullard people who would go to a church like that ain't going to move those feet most of the time, in my opinion. So be careful. Watch out for fake churches like 901, and they'll usually have fake pastors like Stevie Flockhart. And that's always a thing. When somebody comes to me, whether it be Jeff Durbin's church or Stephen Furtick's church or Perry Noble's church or Mark Driscoll's church or Greg Locke's church, one of the first questions is, well, do you have voting membership? If the answer is no, 
the, the, the church is at fault. I don't care what the story is. I don't care if the, the, the pastor's cheating on his wife or taking money. Guilty. And you get what you deserve because you went and spent your time, treasure, and talent giving into some guy's business and you were never an official church member. What did you think was going to happen? Greg Locke's church, they don't have membership, official membership. They can vote Greg Locke out of there. And I think it's the same thing with Jeff Durbin's church. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've interviewed people who have told me otherwise. So I've never heard how it is at Furtick, but I think Furtick and Noble are the type who have this overseers. And then they have a little cabal of overseers. And the U.S. government's not going to tell us what is and isn't a church and how to do our ecclesiology. If you get your ecclesiology from a bylaw instead of the Bible, good luck when things go south. And I really want to say, well, you have your reward in full. Innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents, right? Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. (coughs) Where's my phone? I can turn it off. Oh, no. No, I didn't. Oh, I just recorded this whole episode on the bad phone. Oh, it worked! The microphone on this phone had been broken. Now it works. Maybe it's a miracle. Maybe I can stop carrying two phones. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.